Good morning. My name is Jerome Sack. I, I normally say that when I get up here. Uh, I don't say it for those of you who call Radiant Home because you probably know that. I hope you know that, but you may not. I say that for our guests. If you're a guest with us, we want to say a special welcome to you and thank you for joining us for worship today. Um, before we get to the message, let's, let's open with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you. What a great privilege we have to be a part of what you are doing. You are changing hearts and lives in the world we live in. And you've called us to you and alongside you in that work as individuals and as a church to follow your lead and to love as you love. Help us, Lord, to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you are a guest with us, you don't know this, but uh, unless you've checked us out online, you probably can tell that we've been in the book of John for a long time. Actually, we come back and forth and do different series and kind of break it up, but we are going through the book of John, and we've come to John chapter 8, and throughout this whole series, you've heard on a weekly basis either a summary or I've actually quoted John's purpose statement for writing this gospel. Why did he record, because he even acknowledges this is the end of the late late first century, the other gospels are in circulation. He's like, you know what? I saw something and I want to tell the story. And so he tells us in John chapter 20, you know, there's, there's so many other things that Jesus did, but I, I'm recording this for the express purpose of you believing. And in, when you believe, you have life. And we've seen this belief and life coupled together throughout this study so far in the book of John. John wants to write the story of who Jesus is and what it looks like to follow him. What does it look like to be a Jesus follower, and there's a number of other really outstanding verses that paint a picture of what it looks like to follow Jesus. One of them we haven't reached yet, but it's John chapter 13. Let me read it to you, John chapter 13, 25, and I think it'll be up there, but maybe not. Oh, maybe not. There we go, all right. So now I'm giving you a new commandment, love each other just as I have loved you. You should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Like, that seems easy enough, right? I mean, we know love can be hard. Love's difficult. We all have experience with love. We've had good and bad experiences when it comes to what we call love. But when you talk about loving like Jesus, it becomes a little more overwhelming. Because if you look at the way Jesus loved people in Scripture— he set the bar really, really high. Not only that is sometimes it looks like he navigates the world that, that he walked through really, really well, showing love. But at the same time, sometimes it's really messy. Sometimes it's inconsistent. Sometimes it's unfair. Did I just say that Jesus is inconsistent and messy and unfair? Yes, I did. Sometimes you see Jesus forgiving, just gracious and forgiving, and sometimes he's calling people out. He's, he's holding them accountable. Sometimes you see Jesus, he's coming across, across really harsh, and other times he's incredibly kind. Sometimes Jesus is quick to point out sin. Sometimes it seems like he's ignoring sin. And we're supposed to follow that lead. Well, I'm confused, Lord. And what happens is we tend to, what, what Jesus is doing, he's loving and there's a tension in how he loves. And we don't like tension because it makes us feel uncomfortable. So we tend to lean to one side or the other. And churches tend to do the same thing. We're, we're this kind of church. Now you're saying, well, what's the tension you're talking about, Jerome? I love that you asked that question. Because if Jesus tells us to love like him, then, and he's loving in the middle of this tension, 
then, then we must do the same. Let's go all the way back to the prologue, all the way back to week number one of this series. John opens this book, his account of Jesus, with like the prologue. Like this is the, this, these are the things that are going to take place and happen. John chapter 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. That's the tension that Jesus holds in tension. That's what he manages is grace and truth. We tend to kind of want to lean one way or the other. I like the truth verses. I like to, to stand up for truth when I'm telling my kids how to act and be. But, but when it comes to me, I want the grace, I want the grace first. Like I want that side of things. And we don't like that tension because it is messy and inconsistent and unfair at times. That we kind of lean one way or the other. Truth says that you're accountable, but grace says you're forgiven. Truth says you're broken. Grace says you're fine. Truth says that you, you have some work to do, but grace says it's going to be okay. And Jesus is both of these. 100% grace, 100% truth. He's not compromising grace for truth, and we'll talk about that in a moment, because I think there's a misunderstanding of what grace is that we live with. Because if, if grace really is compromising truth, then I'm truth all the way. But that's a misunderstanding of what grace is. Keep reading in John chapter 1 in the prologue. For from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. This is what makes it messy. All grace, all truth. Now we use the word like, well, he's holding grace and truth in balance. And balance is not the right word. Because balance is weak. Think about a seesaw at school. Two kids are the same weight. All you need is one kid to come by and like touch it. Woo, comes out of balance. There's a tension. Tension's what hold bridges up. You want to relieve tension because it makes you uncomfortable, but if you relieve tension in a bridge, guess what? It collapses into the river, right? So there is a tension that he's walking through. Balance is like this idea of, well, I lean this way, so I kind of kind of have to take some weight off of my, pre my, my, my desire to like really stand up for truth. Let me soften that and kind of compromise that. And 50-50, it's not 50-50 with Jesus. It's all grace and all truth. Jesus calls us to love like he loves, and that's a problem. Because it's messy. Because it's inconsistent, or it appears inconsistent. And the verse we're going to look at today the passage we're going to look at today, the story we're going to look at today is a beautiful illustration of grace and truth, both in equal measure, fully grace, fully truth. And speaking of tension, we have a little bit of house cleaning I need to do first. Um, take a look at your Bibles, if you have your Bibles. Who has their Bibles in front of them? Just taking a, a quick survey. Do you guys see the little note that exists at the very end of chapter 7 before verse 53? I have the New Living Translation. It says this, that the most ancient Greek manuscripts do not include 753 through 811. Does that make you uncomfortable? Is there tension there? We're going to talk about that because I think it's important to 
to acknowledge that and pretend like I didn't see that. Like I could just kind of keep moving and pretend like we didn't see that. We're keeping moving through John, but that's an important thing that I think for, especially for our young people who are going to go and people are going to question them on, can you trust the Bible? I think it's important to, to go ahead and bring that up. My daughter is a senior this year. Um, and when she goes to a place that may be challenging in college or whatever, and someone challenges the authority of scripture, I, I want her to have an answer. So this is all about my daughter right now. I'm not, I'm just kidding. Listen, we get our English Bibles from translations of manuscripts. Manuscripts were handwritten copies that, ex- that was the way that the Bible kind of was spread in the first, what, 15 centuries because the printing press did not exist. And so we have thousands upon thousands of manuscripts that there's a science called textual criticism where we go through those thousands of manuscripts. Listen to this. 5,800 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament, fragments, not necessarily all entire parts of the New Testament, but, but manuscripts from the New Testament in Greek, 5,800. 10,000 Latin manuscripts, 9,300 other ones in other ancient languages like Aramean or Slavic, but there's thousands. Do you know some of the greatest works from the first and second century world that are not scripture have copies that exist today that you could count on your two hands? There's an abundance of copies. But what happens when you have an abundance of copies? There's a greater chance that something's not going to necessarily match up with some other copies, right? There's different regions. There's different schools of thought. There's different, there's different um, scribal tendencies. And so this science digs really deep into this, and I'm not going to do a great job of being accurate in, in, in describing it to you because I didn't spend my life becoming a textual critic. But I'm thankful for the scholars who are. Just like I'm thankful for the people who engineer airplanes. I don't have to understand everything about the laws of aerodynamics before I step on an airplane, but I'm thankful that somebody does. Let me tell you this before we go any further. You can absolutely trust Scripture. Because while there, is a, while there are thousands of copies that increase the possibility that there's going to be variants, there are thousands of copies that give us really good confidence of what was originally there. And the science is what was originally inspired by God to the authors, because we don't have the original thing that John wrote. We don't have any of the what's called autographs. If we did, we would probably put them in a museum and charge you admission to go see them. What we have is copies upon copies upon copies, and there's this whole science. But this text is here with this note. Why? Why, Jerome? Why not just remove this? Because if it's not in the most ancient, probably most reliable transcripts, so it wouldn't be easier if we just took it out. Um, it would mess up the numbering system, first of all, but that's... That's a small reason. Here's the, here's the reason. While scholars almost unanimously agree that this is not original to John, based on grammar, style, the vocabulary, they all unanimously agree that this is an authentic encounter that Jesus had. This absolutely happened in the life of Jesus. Like this story has shown up in Luke in a couple places. It's shown up in different places in John. And they're saying, while it may not be original with John. We're going to leave it in there. We're going to put a footnote in there because this story absolutely aligns with the greater story of Scripture. It does not contradict whatsoever. As a matter of fact, it aligns with the story of John, this idea of grace and truth that we saw in the prologue. If you have your your Bibles, let's read John chapter 1. We're going to start uh, and we're going to stop through the middle of this passage and we're going to pick it up again. When Jesus returned, well, When Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, 
But early the next morning, he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. And he was speaking to each of the religious law. Each of the, as he was speaking, the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they can use against him. We're going to stop in the middle of that verse with John's little narration commentary. They're trying to trap Jesus. So here we have in the first six verses, five and a half verses technically, we have the setting. Jesus is at the temple. He's teaching just like he was in the last chapter. He's likely in the outer court where uh, teachers of the law themselves would be teaching their audience and their students. A crowd gathers, which is natural when Jesus begins to teach. And then the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. Pharisees being a, uh, uh, it's a religious party, a very conservative religious party that was very strict about adhering to the laws, the written law and the oral law, and added to the law. Um, then you have scribes whose job originally was just to copy the law. But they were so immersed in the details, they became like the lawyers who interpreted the law. And so you have these two groups. What they have in common is they don't like Jesus, who's busting up the law, as far as they're concerned. And they bring this woman who's caught into adultery to Jesus and says, the law of Moses says to do this, what do you say? But then in verses 4 through 6, we see this trap. They, the, um, John says in verse 6, they're trying to trap him. He says it right there plainly. They're trying to find, they want him to say something they can use against him. But even if John didn't give us that commentary, verse 5 would tell us that they're trying to trap him. See, if they really cared about upholding the law of Moses, if they really cared about we got to do what's right according to Moses, then they wouldn't have just showed up with the woman. They would have showed up with the woman and the man. Because the law of Moses, Deuteronomy 22, whoa, oh yeah, glory. i got to amen for that. Listen, because what, what the law actually says in Deuteronomy 22 is, when it comes to stoning, it would be a, a, a virgin who is engaged, who has uh, sexual relations with a man that she's not engaged to, and therefore she should be stoned. And then there's also adultery for a married woman who, it doesn't say stoning, it says death. So we're not quite sure the marital status of this woman. I don't think it really even matters. They're showing up with just the woman, not the man. And both scenarios in the law of Moses says you stone both of them, or you, you put to death both of them. And here's the funny thing. By the time the first century rolls around, they weren't stoning anybody. Like, they uphold the law of Moses, but they don't. Scholars will say, listen, they weren't stoning anybody in the first century. This was an unpopular belief. It was not practiced. In fact, it was illegal because if you remember, in the first century, the Roman Empire ruled that part of the world, and the only people who could put someone to death would be the Roman government. So they're asking Jesus. They're trying to trap him. And really, there's no good answer. There's, this is a no-win scenario for Jesus, who somehow still wins, but we'll get there. If Jesus goes against the law, then his credibility would be shot. He would be dismissed as being lawless. He would probably find himself in front of the Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish ruling council. But if he upholds the law, then he would be supporting a practice that is no longer popular or practiced. It's illegal because of Roman rule. And even worse, it would be inconsistent with the message that we've seen from Jesus, one of compassion for the broken and the outcast, one of readiness to forgive and to restore. Either way, he's not winning. So what does Jesus do? Let's pick that up, the middle of verse 6. 
But Jesus stood down, stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer, so he stood up again and said, All right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up and said to the woman, Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. Jesus was asked this question, and he stoops down and starts to write in the dirt. We don't know exactly what he wrote, but people speculate. Perhaps he was writing the sins of the men that were accusing this woman. Perhaps he was writing scripture about talking about being a false witness because these women, this woman was really being used. Like they knew she was, it was convenient for her to pull her out at this time so they could trap me. So not really looking for justice as much as they are looking to, to trap me. Or maybe Jesus was just buying some time formulating a response, which I don't know if that's exactly what he was doing, but it's good advice to those of you on Facebook. Just get a little thing of dirt. Just do this before you type. <laughs> What's Jesus' response? He says, all right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Essentially, he's saying, go ahead, stoner. Stoner. You've never committed adultery in your heart? If that's you, you get to throw the first stone. You've never looked at a woman lustfully? You're next. This is the lineup. All the sinless people go first. Well, what was the response of the people? The people who came to shame Jesus end up leaving in shame. They all slipped away, starting with the oldest, is what the text says. Starting with the oldest. I think that's just simply because as you get older, you get smarter. And they're like, yeah, guys, we were licked. <laughs> he just called us out, and we're, there's no way we're coming back from this. And it's the young people who are like, yeah, no, we're right. We're going to stay in here. And the old people are gone. That's the response of the people. See, Jesus accuses the accusers. They have come self-righteous men, full of judgment, ready to destroy a woman and her life because of their own evil agenda against Jesus. But they are righteous, right? That's how they're presenting themselves. And Jesus sees through that righteousness. Huh. When I was describing the Pharisees earlier, I didn't say this, but the, if you grew up, Turn left at 600 feet. <laughs> if you grew up in a church like I grew up in, which, you know, church like this, I value God's word. We value truth. Then we're at great risk of becoming just like those men. Self-righteous and judgmental. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. So Jesus, after the crowd disperses, finally addresses the woman for the first time in verses 10 through 11. He says, <laughs> notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, so tell me, are you really guilty? He knows that she's guilty. What he says to her is, where, where are your accusers? Did, did not one of them stick around? Nobody reared back to throw? She says, no. No one condemned me. And he goes, I don't either. Go and sin no more. 
So what we have here from kind of the theological themes of the book of John is we've seen throughout the book of John a number of times where Jesus is compared to Moses. Jesus is like a, another Moses bringing a new freedom out of a different slavery. Um, we've seen it time and time again in this book. Despite the note that we have at the beginning of this chapter, this is consistent with that theme that Jesus is, is putting himself above the law of Moses, that he's changing the punishment and that he's reestablishing righteousness on the basis of grace because God sent his son into the world not to judge it, but to save it through him. The righteousness comes as a result of grace. We see him show grace to this lady, and grace absolutely changes us. One of my favorite definitions of grace, the, when we talk about holding grace and, 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 and truth intention, all grace and all truth. One of my favorite definitions of grace um, comes from a, a pastor and author from about 100 years ago. His name is Joseph Cook. You've heard me th read this before because it's one of my favorite definitions. Grace is nothing more or less than the face that love wears when it meets imperfection, weakness, failure, sin. Grace is what love is and does when it meets the sinful and undeserving. It's what enables us to see beyond one another's faults so that we can love one another without reference to whether that love has been earned or deserved. It's what God does when he reaches out in love, sinful as we are, and welcomes us into relationship with himself. I wish I had that thing memorized. I don't. I have a condensed version of that memorized, and it's the point of this message, and it's what I want you to take with you today, because I take it with me. It's like in my pocket, figuratively. And it's not just a definition of grace. It's an absolute help for me to love like Jesus loved. Grace and truth. Grace is the face that love wears when it meets imperfection. Grace is the face that love wears when it meets imperfection. You want to know what it looks like to love like Jesus? It's grace in the face of imperfection. Now I've heard some people say growing up in church, you can't have too much grace. Like, you have to measure that sucker out. <laughs> what? See, when I hear someone say there's too much grace or that's too much grace or we're not, we've got to balance it out, I question whether or not they understand the definition of grace. What they may be see, saying or what they may intend and I, with good intention is we don't want to compromise truth. We don't want to rewrite truth. But as I said earlier, grace is not rewriting truth or compromising truth. Grace is loving because truth has been broken. There is an offense. By definition, grace needs truth. Because if you could rewrite truth to what satisfies us and what makes us comfortable, you don't need grace. If there's no offense, then there's no need for grace. Now this, this chapter... It's a jewel of scripture, despite the little note that exists before verse 53, chapter 7. It's a very famous and popular chapter and incident because we could take it and we could like use it for our own purposes. It's, it's actually been quite abused. Have you heard people appeal to this story when they say, don't judge me? You can't judge me. Whoever doesn't have sin, throw the first stone. Like, like Jesus, as if Jesus is saying, you have to be perfect. 
before you could recognize sin out there. That's not exactly what Jesus is saying. He's not saying you have to be blinded to, unless you're sinless. When people say, don't judge me, don't judge me. But listen, Jesus is not saying you have to be sinless to recognize and even call out sin. He actually makes allowance and gives us instructions on how to do that. Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 3. Let me read this to you. And why worry about the speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? How can you think of saying, see, he's not saying you have a log in your own, don't do anything about it. He's saying do it with some humility, with some fear and trembling. Evaluate your own self first. Don't be blinded. Don't be self-righteous. How can you think of saying to your friend, let me help you get rid of the speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye? Hypocrite. First get rid of the log in your own eye, then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. There is a place for accountability that's born out of love. When I think of Jesus' words to this lady, go and sin no more, I, I think, boy, we don't know what happened to this woman, but he set her up for success. As, as, a, as opposed to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, he says, when he, when he says, go and sin no more, it follows the words, neither do I condemn you. There was grace before there was any charge for her to change. She is a recipient of grace. And on the basis of grace, he tells her to, to change. We are indeed called to be holy as God is holy. God absolutely hates sin. But if we pursue holiness without a profound experience of grace in our own life, then we bounce back and forth between feeling like hypocrites who are trying to hide our sin because we're not doing a very good job. That's why we needed Jesus. Or we feel superior to others because we're doing a, an okay job, better than others, at least. And we become entitled. Superior, entitled people who think they've earned something don't show grace to others. Because it compromises all they've worked for. Superior entitled people don't love like Jesus. Like the older brother in the prodigal or in the parable of the lost son. Grace is the face that love wears when it meets imperfection. And Jesus has told us to love like him. And he's given us an example in this messy story. There's probably a time in my life where, and even maybe even still today where you struggle with, okay, Jesus, how exactly did this all work out? It's a little messy. It's a little inconsistent with other things I've seen him do or say. So here's what I would like to challenge you to do today. Don't be afraid of getting messy. Stand for truth. Be generous with grace. Because grace is the face that love wears when it meets imperfection, when there is offense, when there is sin. Certainly don't withhold it because you're afraid of getting messy. You're afraid of what people will think because people will misunderstand. People won't get it. People will lean one way or the other, looking from the outside, looking in, whether that's showing grace to someone who's wronged you in this room or somewhere else. Let's just do somewhere else. 
Don't be afraid of people misunderstanding you, people being uncomfortable, people accusing you of rewriting truth or the other way around, of standing too tall on truth. And you, listen, you're going to get this wrong. You know why I know that? Because I get it wrong. I'd like to pastor this church full of grace and truth. And I've been your pastor a year and a half and I've already gotten this wrong on a number of occasions. Doesn't mean I, I don't want to get back in the mess. I run to the mess. The funny thing is, um, grace and truth is one of those things where since people lean one way or the other, when you try to manage those two and you live and love like Jesus does and that messy, inconsistent, you, ha you don't just have one critic on one side, you have critics on both sides. Don't be afraid of getting in the mess. And then I would say this, be careful how you follow Christ's lead. Be, be, he gives us the example of grace and truth. He, we see the illustration of it in this passage, but be careful how you follow his, his charge to love like he loves. See, if we follow the charge to love in our own power, in our own strength, if we think that it's up to us to, to force ourselves to show love and to like smile at people we really don't like, but we're loving them because we're smiling at them, we're missing it. If, if, if following his lead and loving people becomes an obligation, it doesn't really feel much like love, does it? We're, we're, we have the outside, it looks like Jesus, we're kind of mimicking, we're imitating, and sometimes we have to fake it till we make it, but listen, there's a far greater path. See, when we become Christians, when we put our faith and our trust in Jesus, there's more than just a right standing with God, or a new relationship with God, there is a new birth. The old person is no longer who I am. I'm no... It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. There is, uh, Jesus gives us the task to love like him, but then he equips us to love like him. He gives us his Holy Spirit to, we talked about that last week, to empower us, to change us from the inside out. Man, let the life of Christ flow through you. Love people, not because you are good at loving people, but, the, but Christ who lives in you is really good at loving people. Just be the vessel for his love. If you're not a Christian and you're here today, we, we're so glad that you're here. Thank you for joining us. Um, the message of the gospel, I hope you heard it in this message. I mean, I can describe it out here and I do almost every week. That we are born separated from God as good as we think we are. Maybe you're looking at yourself going, I'm not really that good of a person and the people in this room well, they, they're church people, so they're probably really good people. If you knew us, you would know that's not true. We're absolutely separated from God, born that way before we did anything wrong. And nothing we can do to make, could make us right with him except for what Christ has done on our behalf and in our place. The message of the gospel is not just a story of Jesus, it's an invitation to receive what he's given you, what he's offering. Will you call on him and you confess and say, I believe, Lord. Will you be my savior? Will you be my Lord? 
And there's a whole lot of stuff that happens and, and there's change that takes place. But listen, right now, salvation's a gift and it's absolutely free. There is a cost to follow Jesus, but salvation is free. As we close the service today, um, after we sing a song, and uh, we have elders who will come to the front and they'll be available to pray with you. Um, they will pray with you. If today you're saying, yeah, I believe. I've been sitting here listening to this guy, but finally it makes sense. That's a miracle, right? But no, <laughs> Jerome makes sense. They will pray with you. And the funny thing about praying to receive Christ is if you're sitting in your chair and you're like, I believe you've already received the prayer is just kind of like that formal, the formality part of the thing. Stamp that sucker. <sighs> I'm going to close, but I'm going to tell you this weird story. How weird Jerome is. This is not how spiritual Jerome is. This is how weird your pastor is. This morning at 4.30 in the morning, and as I was ironing this shirt, and yes, I did iron this shirt. Um... I even starched the collar. <laughs> I'm running the iron over the shirt and I kept the starch that's sitting there on the side and it catches my eye. I don't know what brand you use, but we use Faultless. Faultless. And my mind immediately goes to that hymn. When he shall come with trumpet sound, O may I then in him be found dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. And at 4.30 in the morning, there was a, a spark of worship in my heart, knowing that I would join with people who would stand faultless, not because of our righteousness, but because of his. See, when we are people who remember what Christ has given us, when we remember, we are, we are gracious amnesiacs, we forget we get in this thing for a while and our lives are different and we think we've earned something, we forget. I need Christ's forgiveness today as much as I did as a 17-year-old kid when I first surrendered. I'm just better at hiding my sin. Let's not take another vote on me as pastor. I'm just saying, listen, when we remember the grace that we've received, it changes us. It makes us different people. When we find ridiculous reminders of the grace we've received like starch cans it makes us remember that we've received something we did not earn and we've been spared something that we did earn as individuals it changes us but as a church it changes us may this church radiant Christian life be full of grace and truth as messy as it is and it's messy and we'll get it wrong. But I'd rather mess up trying to get it right than not trying at all. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, and the hope that we have. We sang songs today about the reckless love of God. This messy, inconsistent, full of grace and truth. There's no formula. There's, it's uncomfortable because there's not black and white bumpers for us to just stay within. That's reckless love. 
God, today as we close the service, I pray as we leave this place, you would allow for us to walk in love. And walking in love is showing grace as people who are deeply reminded that we have received grace. We thank you, Lord, for the grace you've shown us. May we be vessels for the grace that you want to show to others. In Jesus' name, amen.